Oh, man, it is so good to be back in this room and to hear you singing. One, uh, last week, one of the worship team members, I won't, well, I won't say who, but they got a little uh, choked up during worship, and they were just like, man, being, being in a room with everybody in there singing back was just so moving and touching, and so it just is so good to be back together. And so anyway, uh, love the kids all over. We heard some noise going on out there. That is just so cool that, that uh, we've, we, we're opened up everywhere and uh, just trusting that the Lord will bless and work in people's lives. So last week we talked about the fact that it is so important to know the real Jesus. And this week we're going to talk about the fact that when you know the real Jesus, it changes everything. And one of the things I just, I shared results of a survey last week. Uh, they just surveyed people who called themselves Christians. And when you go through the doctrinal survey of people who call themselves Christians, they believe things that if you believe, you are not a Christian. And they, they rejected things that you have to accept to be a Christian. And that's one of those things that is so significant for us to recognize that there's a lot of confusion about what it means to actually be a believer. And, and in the church, and we love people, we, we want people to know Jesus and have the eternal blessing that comes from having a personal relationship with Christ, to have the blessings that come from living this life in the way God says we should live it. And the starting place is to know Jesus. And so this week, we'll be considering the fact that knowing the real Jesus changes everything. Labeling yourself a Christian does not change everything. A labeling yourself a Christian has no impact on your eternal destiny. But knowing Jesus changes everything. You know, I think about this life. It is so full of uncertainties, so full of trials, so full of challenges. But when we know the real Jesus, Man, that, that just gives us confidence. It gives us peace because Jesus holds everything in his hands. Uh, have any of you guys heard of, um, of Ralph Abernathy? So I had never heard of Ralph Abernathy, but he was the best friend of Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s last uh, speech, he said that this man was his best friend. Well, he said, uh, he said something that we quote all the time. And I want to figure out, hey, who said this? But here's the quote. It says this, I don't know what the future may hold, but I do know who holds the future. And that's the awesome thing about knowing the real Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus, knowing that no matter what happens, Jesus holds the future. So knowing the real Jesus changes everything because it means we know the truth. You know, the Bible tells us that Satan is a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And there are so many lies that we hear in our culture, so many things that people base their life on that are untrue and that are destructive. You've all heard the proverb, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Like I think about my life, that growing up in the church, that is what described me. I looked at all the things that Jesus said and just said, man, that doesn't seem happy and fulfilling or fun. And then I thought, okay, all these things, all these sinful things that the Bible says are destructive, man, that seems like that's going to really bring blessing and goodness into my life. 
And after living life for a time and realizing all these things I thought would be good for me are destroying me and coming to the place that I say, no, Jesus knows the truth. You know, knowing the real Jesus means that we are no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There's all kinds of things that we're supposed to believe, but when we know the real Jesus, we're not like waves in a storm where every time something new comes out, we're tossed here or there. Knowing the real Jesus frees us to seek him and his righteousness and trust him to take care of our needs. Knowing the real Jesus is an easy yoke and a light burden. It's knowing that everything that happens to us will work out for our our good. If you are a child of God, it does not matter what happens in your life, God will use that for good. It's knowing that nothing can separate us from God's love. It's knowing that as believers, God is always winning and we are always winning no matter how it seems. It's knowing that our confidence, we have a confidence knowing that no matter what happens in this life, our eternal security is secure. secure. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a very powerful passage, Matthew chapter 16. It's been so good. We looked at the first half last week. We're going to look at the second half. And uh, it's just so powerful. And we're going to see three important things this week, this morning. First is that we know that Jesus is the one who builds the church. And that is significant. The church is something Jesus builds. And we know that the church is not a building. It is not an organization. It is a gathering of Christians. And so we know Jesus is the one who builds the church. We know in this passage we're going to see that Jesus has a plan to save people. And one of the really important things in that is that we recognize that people need to be saved. Everybody's not born okay. People are born in trouble. And the great message of salvation, the gospel, is that you are in trouble, but Jesus came to save. And the third thing that we're going to see is that we know that following Jesus is a total commitment. When we follow Jesus, that is something that dominates everything about our life. Jesus is number one. He is our Lord. He is our master. No longer do we live life and just decide, what do I think's best? But we live life saying, Jesus, what do you say is best? And I'm going to obey that. And so we're going to see this. It's exciting. It's encouraging. Now, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and our title of the series is This is Jesus. And so we look at what Jesus says, what the Bible says about who Jesus is, his miraculous birth. We looked at the way Jesus taught and the things that Jesus taught. And we looked at the things that Jesus does, the miracles, that his expression of love that prove who he was. Now, last week, it was kind of, uh, kind of fun. You know, I saw some really great things in that passage. It's been so encouraging to me. But we basically saw that, you know, that chapter started off with the Pharisees saying, I need another sign, demanding a sign. Jesus, entertain me. Do something else. Show me something. And then we just read the long list of miracles that they'd already seen. And they want another one. And Jesus just says, no, I'm not going to give you another sign. We saw the disciples. And and this is the one that really stood out to me. The disciples forgot the bread. 
And so Jesus is talking to them about the false teaching of the Pharisees, and all that's on their mind is, oh, man, I made a mistake. I, I messed up. I forgot the bread. And, and they're so focused on that, the mistake that they made. Yes, they blew it, but they're so focused on that that they miss the spiritual significance of what Jesus is saying in their life. And, and I just think that is so common. So many times we're so focused on the ways that we fail, the things that we do wrong, sins from our past, things we can't do anything about. And one of the things I love about what Jesus says to the disciples is he just says, hey, weren't you with me? Don't you realize I fed 5,000 people and then I fed 4,000 people with just a few fish and a little bit of bread? Do you think I'm worried about whether or not you forgot the bread? And I just love that in life, hey, we need to take obedience and following God and being faithful to the Lord seriously. But our life does not consist of what we do well and where we blow it, where we blow it. Our life consists of God's love and his care and his uh, provision for us. So this is another thing too. It's like, you, you remember how Jesus was frustrated with the Pharisees and the disciples? Mark tells us that um, when, when the Pharisees say, show us a sign, it just says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. He's like, oh, man, not again. He's frustrated with the Pharisees. And then his disciples, when they kind of mess up, Jesus is like, are you guys blind and deaf and unable to see? And it's like Jesus is frustrated with his followers. And uh, it's just this reminder that Jesus is our high priest and he lived life the way you and I live it and he struggled with things um, and dealt with all the frustrations. And we'll look at that. We're going to see that again in this passage in a really powerful way, the humanity of Jesus, the fact that he knows how we feel. And uh, so, and then we, we end with Peter making this great com great confession. I mean, all along the disciples, Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. And finally, Peter, like the disciples get together and they answer this question, right? And Jesus says, that's it. You nailed it. And we're going to see the effect that that has on Peter. So let's, let's dive in here. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to read um, some of our passage from last week, but our, our message this morning really starts in verse 17. Let me just read this, Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And that was in our survey, by the way. <laughs> is Jesus God? No. Is Jesus the first creation of God? Yes. Okay, if you believe either of those things, that's not true, and you can't be a Christian. Jesus was not created. He's the eternal God, and Jesus is God. Yes, he's man, fully human, but he is God in the flesh. And the disciples say, some say John the Baptist. Hey, that's a great compliment. John the Baptist was a powerful servant of Christ. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Those are all complimentary things along the lines of saying that Jesus was a great man, a wonderful moral teacher, and all of those are insufficient. We need to recognize who Jesus is. 
And then he says to them, so he's saying to all the disciples, and Peter, the one who's outspoken, always putting his foot in his mouth, always doing the wrong thing. I mean, Peter actually, you think about Peter, he did great things. He sees Jesus on the water and says, call me out there, and he starts walking, but then he gets scared of the waves and starts to sink. You know, Peter was out there, and he made lots of mistakes, but, but here he gets it right. So Peter replies, and he's answering for the disciples, and he says, you are the Christ. That's the Messiah, the King, the ruler, the Lord. Um, God said, I'm going to send a Messiah who is the King, and he's going to set up my kingdom. And, th- and that's what the disciples wanted, by the way. They wanted an earthly reign of Jesus, and we know that there is going to be an earthly reign, but this wasn't when. And so he recognizes you are the Christ. By the way, our, our Christmas verse that Jesus is named Emmanuel, which is just Hebrew for, for God with us. They recognized who he was. And then they emphasize it even more powerfully by saying, the son of the living God. So they recognize who Jesus is. And then verse 17, and Jesus answered him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And this is our passage for this morning. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now we're going to know that Jesus builds the church, but here's our starting place for salvation. We plead with people. We talk to people. God has given everybody spiritual capacity. Now the Bible tells us that everybody deep in their heart knows that God is real, Romans 1.18 and following Romans chapter 2 says that no matter where you go, people instinctively do the things of the law. No matter where you go, almost, (laughs) there are a few places, but almost no matter where you go, murder is wrong. Almost no matter where you go, there is a sense of morality, and people just, there's this universal sense of what's right and wrong. And of course, that gets polluted. In some cultures, murder and lying is good, and so that does get polluted. But there's this law of God written on people's hearts. So people have spiritual capacity. God has sent the Holy Spirit to convict every single person of sin, They know they're a sinner. Righteousness, they know Jesus is righteous. And judgment, they know there is a coming judgment. That is the role of the Holy Spirit in every person's life. And so people have spiritual capacity. And sometimes as we see people wrestling with the spiritual capacity and going to church and being religious and wanting to be good, sometimes we confuse that with spiritual regeneration, with spiritual life. And so what we're going to see here is that Peter sees who Jesus is and he tells him that my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. That's the thing that we need to recognize, that we will never truly see who God really is without God opening up our hearts. And that's why we pray for people. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we don't change the gospel message. We present what God says. We never edit it. Because if God's working on somebody's heart and we present the truth, he'll use that to save them. But when we take the gospel message and we just think, hey, uh, who's going to like this? Who isn't going to like this? How can I change this so it will be acceptable to people? We actually take out what is significant and powerful and life-changing. And so we don't edit the gospel. We just deliver it because it's God who does a work. And now let's look at verse 18. And 
This is such a controversial passage. And there are so many completely wrong doctrines that get developed out of this passage. Let me read it to you. It's verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And uh, that was the, the name that Jesus gave Peter. He changed his name from Simon to Peter. And so he says, your name is Peter. By the way, that name means rock. And this is the only time, like as you study history, nobody was named Peter before this time. So if, you, if you're named Peter... Uh, like, this was not a, n- a normal name in that culture. And so Jesus names Peter, Peter. If your name's Peter, well, hey, this goes back to what Jesus named Simon. And so then he, ca- he says, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That is Simon's original name. It's his first name and just saying son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. That is such a powerful key phrase. It's what we're going to be looking at. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the, king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So when we look at this passage, there's, there's all kinds of things. The, the doctrine of the Pope uh, comes from this passage. And here's the idea is that Jesus right here says, Peter, you are my person. You are my, represent, my representative. And on you, I'm going to build the church. And there are all kinds of crazy doctrines that are developed from that. For example, that the redemption of Jesus' death on the cross, the good works of the saints, the good works of Mary all go into this pool of redemption. And that pool of redemption is controlled by the church. It's controlled by the Pope. And the Pope, through the priests, dispense God's grace and mercy. And so the whole idea is this, that when you die or, or when you sin, you are forgiven by the, not only the death of Jesus, but the good works of Mary and the good works and the prayers of all the saints, all that gets mixed together, and the Pope dispenses that. That's what happens when you go to confession. That's what happens when you give indulgences. It's like, okay, so I'm going to give some money to the church, and then the Pope, controlling this through the priests, will dispense Jesus' redemption to me and, and, and my family members. And so you can give money to the church to get your relatives out of purgatory. That was Martin Luther's big thing. He's like, first of all, the Pope doesn't control who's in heaven and hell. And secondly, if you did control it, why wouldn't you just let everybody out? Why would you make people pay? So that was like one of the big things with the Reformation. So I just want to say all of that is wrong. That is not what is happening in this passage. Now, it's an interesting thing to play on words with Peter and the rock. And uh, so Peter, that's the, that's the word for stone, and the word for rock is a different gender. Peter's masculine, and the word for rock is, is feminine. And that word is used in the New Testament um, probably about 10, 15 times, but it's only used three times outside of the Gospels and the book of Revelation. And all three times, it refers to Jesus himself. 
Like the, the, the rock in the wilderness, when Israel was in the wilderness, and Peter says that, that that rock that was with Israel, that is Jesus. The rock of stumbling and of offense to people, that's the same word, and that's talking about Jesus, how people stumble over Jesus. And so the question is, 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 is Jesus saying, Peter, on you I'm going to build this rock? I'm, I'm going to build the church? Or is he saying uh, the apostles? You know, um, um, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This confession that Peter makes that he recognizes who Jesus is, that the apostles are the ones that are delivering God's inspired message. And so the, the rock that the, cheese, that the church is built on is Jesus. It is not a person. But certainly the apostles were God's divine spokespeople. The reason that the apostles, they're laying out, out God's theology, they're explaining the prophets in the Old Testament were explaining God's word. They were inspired, they wrote, they told people what was right and wrong. And the apostles in the New Testament did the same thing. They wrote the New Testament. And that's the foundation that Jesus uses to build his truth. Truth, that's the foundation Jesus uses to build the church. And so um, that's the interpretation of that passage. It's not Peter that he personally holds the keys. And so as we consider this, um, one of the things that I love is that um, the, the, the apostle Peter was outspoken. And when you think about Peter through the New Testament and you think about the way that God used him, um, Peter was outspoken and that continued. And we saw God's grace and God's power working through Peter's life. He seemed to lead the replacement for Judas in the book of Acts. He was prominent on the day of Pentecost. He was the one who preached that first sermon when the church was born. Peter was the one sent to um, Cornelius when the Gentiles got saved. And so Peter was powerfully used. But this verse, it's Jesus who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not Peter who builds a church. It is not some succession of apostles or, or popes or, or people that build the church. It is Jesus who builds his church. And this is prophetic about the church. Up until this point, there's no, chief, there's no church. Jesus says, I will build my church. It's future. And so Jesus is speaking prophetically. Now, the church is a group of people. It's every believer from the day of Pentecost to today. And there's a universal church, which includes every Christian. By the way, Catholic means universal. And so there is a Catholic church. There is a universal church. And that includes every Christian. And then there are local churches. And Foothills is a local church, a local gathering of people who know Jesus. And one of the things that I love is that we get to participate with God in building the church. Jesus is the one who built it. He's the architect. But look at this. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul is writing and he's saying, I planted. Paul went out and preached. He shared the gospel. He was an evangelist. And it says, Apollos watered. So when people came to Christ and when they came together, Apollos was teaching and training them. And it says, but God gave the growth. 
So when it comes to people coming to know the Lord and people growing as believers, we have a role. We, we are allowed to participate with God, but it says here that God is the one who causes the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. You know, I, I just think about uh, this whole COVID-19 situation. And, and I've, I've heard so many people saying the church is forever going to be different. It's changed. We're going to have to go about ministry in a whole new way. I've heard people saying that about our country. And I just take a step back and think, why? In 1917, there was this massive flu that was actually far more deadly than the COVID, um, COVID virus. There were o- almost 700,000 people died. The, uh, one in three people on the planet got the sickness. That was 1917, and guess what? Three years ago, nothing was different because of that. Why would people think that, like, people look at our culture, and they all, millennials, they don't give, and they're not committed to the church, and there's all these studies about what people are like, and, oh, man, the church has to accommodate this, and we have to do this, and we have to do that. Why would we think that culture has anything to say to the church? The struggles and difficulties that the church has right now in the United States, hey, they're significant. Times are changing, but this is not the greatest change. This is not the greatest significant difficulty that the church has faced. The church throughout history, through the New Testament period and all throughout history, has faced all kinds of things. There are places in the world right now where if you're a pastor, you may be asleep. People may come into your house, grab you and throw you into prison, torture you, behead you. There are Christians that when people know who you are, you could be killed or mobbed in the streets. Like there, are, there are places that if people find that out, you could die. I would just say all the difficulties and challenges that we are facing in the United States right now related to the church, if this is not the most significant thing anybody's gone through. Hey, times are changing, and we should be able to learn and think about culture. But here's the thing I think is crazy. So many pastors and leaders and people, when, when things change and when things are different and they're getting mixed up, They grab the latest surveys and the latest books and the latest opinions on how things should be done. You know what? When things are are rocky and we're not sure what to do, what do you do? You don't grab somebody's opinion that maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, who knows. We go back, we grab the Bible, and we say, Jesus, what did you tell us to do? We're going to trust you because the church belongs to you. Everything you say is true. It's kind of crazy. I I was uh, listening. um, I I read... uh, um, a book written by C.S. Lewis. And one of the things that stood out as he was talking about his culture, and actually John just is reading it recently, and he made the same comment to me. It's how similar things were almost 100 years ago to how they are today. We always think that what we're going through is unique, and it's not. And so as the church, we recognize Jesus builds it. He's the one that we follow. You know, sometimes we feel like we're losing the battle But I just want you to know that Jesus builds the the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When the church is persecuted, you go to communist countries like Russia, Africa, just different places where the church is suppressed. You know, in, in Russia, when the church was just suppressed and persecuted, the church grew and was strong. And as that got opened up, the the liberalism, the blessing, the the peace is actually sometimes what harms the church more than persecution. Because when there's a persecution, there's a clear choice. 
I remember uh, my kids, you know, they went to a Christian school and it was like popular and everybody was a Christian, but nobody really lived it out. And I remember one of my kids coming to me and just saying, Dad, I feel myself becoming so complacent. I just want to go to a public school. And, and in going there, it's like you know who the Christians are and who aren't Christians. And when you gather with believers in a public school that are sharing the gospel, that are, that are prioritizing God in their life, it's obvious. And, and the mission field is obvious. And so Jesus wins. The gates of hell do not prevail. And the apostles tell us what's true and what's not true under the inspiration of Scripture as God inspired them to write. Let's look at the second thing. So we look at this. Peter's done this great thing, and it's amazing how, you know, pridefulness is so destructive. I mean, Peter just makes the statement, and Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father, uh, God has opened your heart. What you said is right. And then what we look at next, uh, we see that Jesus has a plan to save, and you want to know something? It didn't look good to Peter. Uh, let's, let's read it, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. You know, Jesus came to this earth because people need to be saved. That's one of the things that we want to leave out of the gospel. We just want to say to people, God loves you, and God doesn't make any junk. You are a wonderful person, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. And can I just tell you, that is true. But that's not the gospel by itself. We need the whole picture. Jesus didn't come and suffer and die on the cross and be raised again for nothing. He did that because it was a necessity you know, John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For many people, you want to know what the, mer- the message of the church is? Um, that come to church and your life will be better. We'll help you have a better life. And, and without a focus on Christ, it's just a better life. The church exists to make disciples who focus on eternity. And sometimes that has blessings in this life. And sometimes it brings suffering. Sometimes being a Christian will end your life. And, and so Jesus didn't come to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. He came to save you from your sin. Jesus didn't come to just give you earthly blessings, a good marriage, better relationships, good financial principles, and to help you be a better person. Jesus came to secure your eternal well-being. You know, God is the one who made life. I remember as a new Christian, I gathered all the high school and junior high students together, and I just said, hey, sin's terrible. It's no fun. And uh, the living, living to please Jesus is, man, that's the best way to live. And you want to know something? That was true. But there's also a lot of fun involved in sin. A lot of times it feels natural. It feels right. It feels um, fulfilling. But it brings death. Here's the thing we recognize is that God made us God loves us. God knows how to live life 
the right way. And things that don't make sense in this life, Jesus tells us to do. And as it turns out, what Jesus says is always best. See, the Bible tells us to return good for evil. That doesn't make any sense. I've seen so many people in marriage who they struggle and they fight and they have so much conflict. And it's because this person is going to learn not to treat me that way. When you treat me like this, you are going to suffer. So you learn. You don't get you what you want when you do that. Returning evil for evil. Making boundaries, which always leads to a terrible marriage. Oh, you did this first. No, you did it first. And Jesus just says, no, return good for evil. Put other people's needs first. See, logically, it doesn't make sense that that's necessarily going to be what's best, but that brings blessing. And, and as it is in all of life, everything that Jesus says, everything God tells us is what's best, whether it seems like it in the moment or not. So God does bring blessing for those who love him and who faithfully obey him, but it's not God's purpose to make you happy. It's God's purpose to make you holy. And God loves you and he's going to bless you. And so for Peter, he looks at Jesus' plan and he just says, oh yeah, no thanks. And here's the crazy thing, like look at this, verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Hey Jesus, look, God's, God's like showing me things in my heart. So let me pull you to the side. Let me instruct you. Hey, Peter was very gracious. He didn't embarrass Jesus in front of all the disciples and let him know, Jesus, you're a you're, you're knucklehead here. What you're saying isn't right. I don't want to embarrass you in front of everyone. Come over here and let me help you. So Peter was very uh, magnanimous to Jesus. He took him aside. By the way, when Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside to instruct him more fully, that's the same word using here. Uh, Peter thinks he's going to help Jesus out. But it says he rebukes him. So he actually says, Jesus, no, you are wrong. Like, think about how crazy that is. Uh, he's rebuking Jesus, and he says, this will never happen to you. You know, um, doesn't that seem crazy to you that Peter did that? Let me just ask you a question. Do you ever do that? You ever going through life? You read something in the Bible and you just say, yeah, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. You ever go through life and maybe you face a circumstance in your life that you didn't like or you didn't plan? Maybe somebody you know and love gets cancer. Maybe some tragedy strikes you and you look and you just say, that's not right. No, God, this isn't right. You ever know anybody who's mad at God because of things that have happened to them in their life? See, a lot of times we read this story and we separate it from ourselves and we think I'd never do that when the reality is we do this kind of thing all the time. And so um, Peter does that. It's crazy. And he thinks he knows what's best instead of recognizing that Jesus knows what's best. And here's a moment where we see the humanity of Jesus. Like there's something said here that's just insane. Like, it's a crazy thing what Jesus says next in verse 23. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Here's something we need to recognize. There are times when you and I become the mouthpiece of Satan. And, and when Satan influences other people through us, through the things that we say, Sometimes there are people in our life, maybe people we love and our friends, 
and they become the mouthpiece of Satan in our life. And like Jesus, we need to learn to recognize that. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is speaking through you. You know, Jesus' temptation happens in Matthew chapter 4 where Satan goes and tempts Jesus and he's out in the wilderness. But that was not the only time that Jesus was tempted. He was tempted throughout his life with the frustration with the Pharisees, the frustrations with his disciples, all kinds of things. Jesus was living that same life and he was resisting temptation and doing what was right all the time. He says, get behind me, Satan. And then this is the word that like is kind of shocking, the phrase where it says, you are a hindrance to me. You are a hindrance to me. You know, I, I picture many times Jesus always just, you know, there's never any pressure, never any difficulty. He just does, ah, Peter, that's dumb. Don't say that. That it has no influence and no pull on him. But Jesus says to Peter, you are a hindrance to me. You are a temptation to me. You are, you, there's like this pull in me to do the wrong thing because of what you're saying. Now, we know that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. And because of that, he understands us. He, he sympathizes with us. And he's been tempted in every way as we are, except he was without sin. Jesus never sinned. But this is, if you think about one of the things that was huge in Jesus' mind, and I think we miss this because we, we think about Jesus as God, which is right, but we take out his humanity. But look at this in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse, 20, verse 39 of Matthew 26. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. I mean, he came for that purpose. He's telling Peter, I've got to go to the cross. But there was a side of Jesus that was dreading what was going to happen. Have you ever faced something like that in your life where something's coming and it causes you all kinds of, man, you just don't want to face it? That's how Jesus viewed the cross. In verse 26, verse 42, so a few verses later, and again for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then it says in verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. This is Satan knowing that this, this was a, an unimaginable thought to Jesus, speaking through Peter and saying, no, avoid the cross. And Jesus says, hey, you are a hindrance to me. You know, what Jesus did on the cross is unimaginable. But he did that because we needed it, because we're sinners, because we are lost without Christ. And you know what? When we fail to help people see where they stand before Christ. When we just tell people, oh man, you are a God, you're, you're a wonderful person and God doesn't make any junk and that's our message to them, we actually hinder them from the gospel. People need to know I am in serious trouble with God. I am heading down a road to destruction. My heart isn't right. And, and that's what makes the good news so good because the bad news is so bad. You know, God doesn't make junk. You are a precious child made in God's image. You're not junk, but you are a sinner, 
And you are spiritually separated from God before Christ. You are not junk. But the Bible tells us that you are God's enemy without Christ. You're not junk. But without Christ, you have no hope. And Jesus came and went to the cross and endured everything that he endured so that you could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Jesus came to, gave, to give you new life. Let's look at the third section here. We know that Jesus, following Jesus is a total commitment. You want to know what Jesus never says? Jesus never says, look, you are in charge of your life. You are the king of your life. Let me know how I can come alongside and help you and, and give me every morning when you wake up, pray and give me some instructions. Tell me what I can do. I'll try to do that for you. And then you can get mad at me and scold me if I don't do all the things you want. That is never what Jesus says. Every time people come to Jesus, he says, bow down, worship me. I'm God. In fact, the rich young ruler is talking to him, and he, and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, follow all the commandments. He's like, oh, yeah, I did that. And then Jesus says, oh, okay. I could tell you love your money more than me. So go sell everything you have. Give it to, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the guy went away sad. And that's always the, the message that Jesus has. You don't call the shots and just say, hey, I do what I want, and Jesus, come along for the ride. Jesus says, I am God. You will fall down on your face. You will worship me. You will obey me. And by the way, that will only happen when we truly see Jesus for who he is, when God opens up our heart and we see who Jesus really is. Look at this. Jesus says this. To Peter and his disciples, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what Jesus says. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Say no to yourself. Just like Jesus said in the garden, not my will but yours. You want to follow me? You're going to spend the rest of your life saying, Jesus, not my will but yours. Jesus, what's your, what is your will? I'll do that. I know you love me. I know it's what's best. And also, I know you have the right to tell me what to do because you are God. You made me and you own me. So yes, I will have a better marriage and it's because when I'm married and, my, and I feel like I've been unfairly treated by my spouse and everything in me wants to say, you're going to suffer for that. And then I think, no, wait, Jesus says I'm not allowed to do that. Jesus says, I have to be gracious and loving and kind and return good for evil, and that results in a good marriage. So I am going to be blessed in my marriage. I'm going to look at my kids, and I'm going to think, oh, man, the best thing for me to do is this. Oh, wait, no, the Bible says I shouldn't do that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. And that will result in the blessing and benefit of kids. So God is blessing us. But every day as a Christian, we get up and we say, not my will, but yours. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 Paul's talking to the Romans and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, that's reserved, set aside for God's use and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, that's the problem is that sometimes it's easier. <laughs> you, know, you go to these countries where somebody says, uh, can you deny Christ or I'm, I'm going to cut your head off with a sword on TV. And it's like in that moment, you're like, okay, how am I going to do this? And, and some of these people, they get beheaded. 
And uh, that's, that's a decision for that moment, but it's kind of hard when you got to do it every day. You got to be a living sacrifice. That's a problem with being a living sacrifice is we all made that choice when we come to, came to Christ. But then every day we get a chance to crawl off the altar sometimes. And we got to get back on that and just remind ourselves, no, Jesus, you are in charge. We are living sacrifices. You know, with the call that Jesus gives us, um, Eternity is at stake, but it is a great trade. When you see who Jesus is, you're happy to do it. You know, one of the things that I would just say is this. Commitment to Christ does not cause salvation. It's not like, oh, okay, if I can be good enough, if I can be committed enough, I'll be saved. No, commitment to Christ is the result of salvation. When God opens up your heart and you see who Jesus is, how wonderful he is, how much he loves you, how wise he is, and that he's God, it is a natural response to say, okay, I obey you. I'll, I'll trade anything for you. That's the whole pearl of great price. When you see the value of Jesus, you would sell everything to have it because you realize he's worth more than anything you have. And so commitment to Christ is not the cause of salvation, but it is the result of God opening up your heart and making you spiritually regenerated. Verse 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So often we feel like if we want to tell people, hey, come to Christ, but it's okay, you can keep your car and you can keep this and you can keep that. And What are the things you want in your life? Yeah, you can keep all that, but just, just have Jesus too. When the gospel message is you bow and you worship Jesus as God, you recognize him for who he is and you obey him, that's what Jesus is calling every Christian to. And that's the gospel message and we can't strip that out. Because when we do, we're changing the message that God gave us. So just so you know about the disciples, Peter was crucified upside down. His brother Andrew was whipped and then cru crucified. Nathan was beaten and then crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon the Zealot was cru crucified. A lot of what the disciples watched happen to Jesus, they went through. Matthew was stabbed with spears in Ethiopia. Thomas was stabbed with spears in India. James, the son of Alphaeus, was killed with a club as an old man after they threw him off a wall. Judas, uh, Jude, I'm sorry, not Judas, Jude was stoned. Now, all that comes from church history. It's not the Bible. It's as reliable as any other history, but it's not inerrant. But there's actually only two people, two of the disciples, that their death is actually recorded in the, in the Bible. Um, in Acts chapter 12, James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod. And we know Judas hung himself. Church history tells us that Matthias, the replacement of Judas, was stoned. And John is the only disciple that died of old age. And he died in exile on, on the island of Patmos. The rest of the disciples were killed. And you want to know something? God doesn't require every Christian to be a martyr. But following Christ, who says, Jesus, you're in charge and I'm going to follow you. And why wouldn't we do that? Because whoever, uh, you know, what, uh, to lose our life in this life and gain it for eternity, uh, that's what is significant. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, thank you for your word and Lord, for what you tell us. And God, I pray that you would help us every day to think about what it means to honor you. Lord, it is such a temptation to love the things in the world and, and not to love you. Lord, help us to be reminded of what matters, to live with eternity in mind. Lord, thank you for your grace and your kindness that you sent Jesus to provide salvation. Lord, that there's nothing we can do to earn it, nothing we can do to deserve it. Lord, that we don't live every day trying to please you, trying so hard to earn your acceptance. Lord, we have your acceptance. We have your love. We have your provision. And Lord, help us to live that out in our life and to call people into the same blessed relationship with you in your name. Amen.